And I picked these two passages um, because they really mirror correct question and answer 108 and 109. Question 108 looks at um, God's will for us in the seventh commandment. And, and then it, it elaborates on it, that it's not just the outward action of adultery, but it gets much more deeper than that. And, and, and uh, as Jesus pointed out in Matthew 5, the command, what lies behind the commandment is our internal thoughts and desires that produce the action of adultery. And the uh, commandment, as the catechism points out, rightly forbids um, or, or guides us towards clean thoughts so that we'd have clean actions. And one thing that the uh, catechism doesn't do um, that we're going to do tonight is look at a wide scope biblical solution to avoiding or, or uh, staying in with, within the parameters of uh, the seventh commandment. So we're going to use the, the catechism as a springboard to look at the, biblical, the bigger biblical picture. Having said that, I want to set you up with a, a real-life uh, uh, scenario. It's a story about a husband and wife, Jack and Teresa. Jack and Teresa have been married for 25 years. They met at a small Christian college and dated the entire time they were there. They have four kids, all who are out of the house now. Jack is a successful sales manager, and Teresa works at the local library. For the first 20 years of their marriage, Teresa took primary control of managing the house. She was the primary parent who instructed and disciplined her children. Teresa has a strong personality, isn't afraid of voicing her opinion, even if it's contradictory to her husband's. She's goal-oriented, a no-nonsense, task-oriented person. Jack is a highly successful sales manager. His division always leads corporate sales. He's highly relational. He's a good motivator. He's a great manager who helps his sales force in every, every way, including sometimes in dealing with personal problems. He really cares for people. He's a great dad coaching their sports, helping out with school projects. Jack's goal-oriented, easygoing, and very relational. Teresa just discovered that Jack is having an affair with someone from work. She assumed that something was up when Jack started spending unusual amounts of time on the phone in the garage. She started asking him who he was talking to, and he would respond saying he was talking to someone at work, someone from work, and he didn't want to bother her while she was watching TV. Teresa's suspicions grew, and one day she decided uh, to check his cell phone and saw that most of these calls were going to Maria, a young woman who works for Jack. And in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, a 25-year marriage is now thrust to the edge of dissolution. How does stuff like this happen? We hear similar stories about our coworkers or our neighbors or maybe even some of our relatives. But we all think that that could never happen to me. I would never play the part of Jack my marriage is much better than theirs. My question to all of us this evening is, are we so sure about that? Do we really think by saying that would never happen to us, 
it will stop it from happening to us? Do you know that 53% of Americans thought that it would never happen to them, and they were wrong? 53%. It's not that much better among Christians. Among Christians across the board, it's 48%. And if you narrow it a little better, for those of you who uh, show up, actually, they didn't have a stat for people who show up to Sunday morning and Sunday evening. It's probably a little bit better. Um, But... uh, for, for people who go to church every week, it's 31%. But still, 31%. Let's say there are 40, 50 marriages here. That's 12 or 15 marriages that dissolve, either by adultery or another reason. Unfortunately, Jack and Teresa's story is a highly possible scenario, even for us here tonight. And I want to challenge you. What's going to keep you from being a similar scenario, a similar case study? Even if you never commit actual adultery and actual divorce, what's going to keep you from committing virtual adultery through internet porn or an out-of-line fantasy life or an emotional affair with another person? What's going to keep you from having an unspoken, unofficial divorce where you're together on paper, but you and your wife are more, or your husband are more like roommates living separate lives? Our two Bible readings this evening give us external and internal symptoms and actions to avoid. But is there any practical, proactive, biblical help that can keep us from breaking the seventh commandment? As Moses, Jesus, and our catechism defines it. Well, we tend to focus on um, really specific things like, hey, if you have good communication, you'll be all right. Or if you have good conflict resolution, you'll be all right. Or if you can put in protective measures to avoid sources of lust, you'll be all right. Well, those things are great, but I want to point us tonight to a bigger picture, an all-encompassing solution that helps us to rightly frame up what Christian marriage is all about. I'm going to talk for a moment about covenant theology, but please don't shut down here. This is not an ivory tower disconnected theology, but theology that will breathe life into how we think about and how we live out our marriages. See, marriage is a a covenant we make with God and another person. It's a commitment that's based on love, a commitment that promises to love, care for, protect, and serve one another. But ultimately, marriage, Christian marriage, is a reflection or a replica or a microcosm, whatever you want to call it, a a mini-human version of God's covenant with us. The more clearly we can see how God operates in his covenant with us, and the more closely we follow God's model, the stronger, more productive, more satisfying our marriages will be. I want to look fairly quickly at how God operates in his covenant with us. And I just have a short sampling of of, uh, covenant-rich texts. 
you could, uh, they're, they're pretty short, so you don't have to turn to them. I'll, I'll read them. The first one is from Genesis 1, the first glimpse of covenant. God says, let us make man in our image, and he creates him, male and female, he, he creates them. And then in verse 28 of chapter 1 in Genesis, it says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and over every li- living creature that moves on the ground. Now, does that sound like duty-bound? Does that sound like it's drudgery, obligation? No, it's freedom. God says, God blesses them and says, be fruitful, increase in number. This first general covenant, this cultural mandate that God gives us, it's freeing. If you fast forward a few chapters to chapter 12 in Genesis, we get a little bit more specific. God sets a, a, a covenant with Abraham, and which will be the covenant that sets the tone for his relationship with all of God's people, including us. And it says in verse 1 through 3, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Okay, that's a pretty tough Uh, duty to follow. That's pretty tough. Leave your comfort zone and go. But here's the blessings of the covenant. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now there's some pretty strong duty. He has to leave. He has to go. But does that covenant sound like it's just racked with obligation? Like the duty is so overwhelming? No, it's prosperous. It's bringing out the best in Abraham. The blessings way outweigh the duties. A couple more. Um, We read the law from Exodus, and in Deuteronomy, it's um, restated. Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 and 2 says this. Moses summoned all of Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. So Moses is saying, Okay, people, here's our duty. God has made a covenant with with us. We are committed to him. Here's what we have to do. And then the Ten Commandments are given. And then at the end of the Ten Commandments, in verse 32 and 33 of Deuteronomy 5, it says this, So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the left or to the right. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you'll possess. Now, the Ten Commandments are not some easy set of rules. They are are tough guidelines for life to keep us in line with God's plan, God's design. But is that covenant relationship just shackled with obligation? No, those rules, those guidelines are designed to bring the best out in us, designed to make us prosper. It says, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days. Last covenant, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31. 
God says this through the prophet Jeremiah. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. God is basically saying, here's a new covenant because you committed adultery on me. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Isn't that amazing? If you begin to analyze all the covenant-rich scripture texts in the Bible, you'll see that God's covenant with us contains three main elements, three main ingredients. First of all, it's based in love. God covenants with us because he loves us, his creation. He blesses us. He wants us to prosper. He brings out the best in us. John 3.16, that famous, often quoted verse says, for God so loved the world. God's commitment to us is rooted in love. Uh, the second element of God's relationship with us is his commitment. There's mutual commitment. It's not just, hey, I'll be your God whenever I want to. God is committed to us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he expects that in turn from us. He says in Exodus 24, uh, chapter 20, verse 4, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love and keep my commands. God knows the only way we're going to be okay is if we stay faithful and committed to him and follow him. Has anyone ever heard of Charlie Steinmetz? Well, there's some, yeah, all right, we got, there's some corporate, there's, an, there's a corporate urban legend, and most people think it's probably true, but they haven't been able to verify it yet, but, but uh, Charlie was a prominent electrical engineer with GE back in the uh, early 20th century. And not long after his retirement, all the engineers at General Electric, they had a problem with this, this, this one big machine that, that was the size of this huge warehouse that, they, that housed the machine. And they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't fix the problem. And a call was made to Charlie. And uh, he came to the plant and said, well, now I'm working as a consultant. And they said, okay, whatever. We need, we need this fixed. And Charlie walked around the room for a while, looking and listening. And after a few minutes, he took out a piece of chalk and placed an X on a panel on the machinery. When the other engineers disassembled the machinery, they were amazed to find that it was exactly where the problem was. A few days later, the engineers received an invoice from Charlie for $10,000. Now, that's, that's probably more like $100,000 in our day. $10,000 back then was a lot of money. And so they returned it to Charlie and asked him to itemize it. A few days later, they received an itemized bill which says, making one X mark, $1. Knowing where to place that X, 
$9,999. God is the creator of all life, the author of existence. He knows us. He knows where to put that X. He knows what's wrong with us. He knows how to um, alleviate and free us from those things that are wrong with us. He's committed to us. He loves us. And our success depends upon how we reciprocate to that love and commitment. That's where duty comes in. So there's love, there's commitment, there's duty in every covenant that God has with us. Following God's lead, even though we don't feel like it, that's duty. Following God's lead, even when we don't feel like it. It's recognizing that even when it seems ludicrous to do so, even when other people are saying, don't do it, you follow God's lead because you know you can trust him. And you know in the end, maybe not the short term, but in the end, you'll be blessed for your obedience. Well, marriage is a mirror or microcosm of God's covenant relationship with us. It's a covenantal relationship designed to bring out the best in both the husband and the wife. It's a relationship where needs are met, where goals are achieved, where deep intimacy and pleasure is had in the incredible protection of commitment, trust, vulnerability. When there's vulnerability, when there's trust, there's intimacy. And when there's intimacy between two interdependent people, then those people are going to rise to a deeper level imaging more and more their intended design for life. One last scripture that looks at, at, at covenants, and that's Ephesians 5. And I ask you that you turn with me to Ephesians 5. It's found in page 1159 in the, in the um, Pew Bibles. I'm going to just look at a few verses from chapter 5. First, Ephesians 5, chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So chapter 5 really is under the heading of be imitators of God. Under that heading is a, a subnote. Look at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, now we're to be like God. We're to imitate God by being mutually submissive. Well, how is God mutually submissive? He's God, right? Well, several spots in the Bible are very clear that even in the Trinity, among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's mutual submission. Jesus says, I only see what the Father I only do what the Father um, does. I only do what I see the Father doing. And then Jesus tells us about the role of the Holy Spirit is to remind you about my teachings. There's a, a, a mutual submission within the Trinity itself. So we are to be imitators of God, and part of that is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here's, um, let's, let's look at Paul's instructions to wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as 
Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I confess I still don't love that deeply. Thankfully, Laura is patient. But I haven't got to the point where I love the way Christ has loved the church. Skip down to verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. You see that in that marriage covenant, that's based on love and is formalized by a commitment. There's duty. But it's not shackle me down, rob my pleasure, obligation. But it's duty that brings out or should bring out the best in both spouses. In a Christian marriage, in a covenant Christian marriage, I base my own personal decisions and actions on my love for Laura, on my commitment to Laura, and on my duty to Laura, which in turn stokes my love for Laura, my commitment to her, and my desire to be her better husband. See, love... Um, catalyzed with commitment that springs duty increases love which catalyzes commitment which springs more duty and the cycle will repeat each other it will repeat and get stronger and stronger but today in society we don't have a covenant Christian marriage theology we have a me focused marriage theology covenant Marriage is not based on how I feel or what I want or what I think, even though I really want it to be what I want, what I feel, and what I think. And I should be expressing all those things to Laura. I should be expressing what I want, what I feel, what I think. But they should not provide the gasoline for any of my decisions or actions. What should provide the gasoline is my love, my commitment, and my duty. It's not what are my needs. What can my spouse do to meet my need? How can my spouse make me the person I want to be? I think our society goes into marriage with those kind of ideas. And there's a phenomenon called startup marriages that has affected the church as well. Where a marriage will form last one, one and a half to two years and then dissolve. Because the operating principles are what are my needs, what can my spouse do to meet my need and how can my spouse make me the person I want to be. And when those don't get answered the right way, uh-oh. See, all this talk about submission and duty does not mean at all the biblical view for marriage is drudgery. Not at all. 
In fact, we can think of the duty in two parts. Um, just like a, a marriage ceremony, there are, are two main parts. One is the vows, right? The verbal vows. I promise to love, honor, and cherish. And by the way, honor is just another word for bring out the best in. I, I promise to love, honor, and cherish my spouse. For richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. When we go about that side of duty, we are going after bringing out the best in our spouse, honoring our spouse. And hopefully, if we're both on the same page, they are doing it back to us. So if we're both looking out for one another, both of us are in a great place. The best is brought out in both of us. But duty just doesn't come in the verbal vows. And I can imagine Laura's hoping that I don't go here now. Uh, but duty is also brought out in the symbolic oath in the marriage covenant. There's two symbolic oaths. One is a, a wedding ring. Does any, that, that symbolizes the, the ratification of the, the marriage. Does anybody know the other symbolic oath? Somebody? What's that? Or oh, unity candle could be, but this is a uh, more visceral. The honeymoon, the two become one flesh. So, um, so, so the the ring is one s- symbol of of the ratification of those verbal oaths, but the the marriage bed, that first sexual intercourse is the, 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 the two becoming one flesh. In fact, I had this professor who was so steeped in covenantal theology that when, and, and uh, this is very not so practical, but he was really um, frank with how he framed up covenant uh, marriage theology when um, someone in his church said, hey, would uh, you perform the wedding? And he found out that they had already slept with each other. He said, well, you guys are already married. Just have the reception. This also, the symbolic oath of sex is also part of the duty of marriage. And just so you don't think I'm making this up, I have the scripture right here. Let's, let's, let's look at the scripture. It's from 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 3 through 5. Yeah. The husband should fulfill his marital duty. There's that word. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to the wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. And he's not talking about this specifically, but, but talking about whether or not we should get married. Paul wanted all of us to stay single. So there it is, part of our, our duty as husband and wife, and this is, as, as a newlywed, this is the, 
and hopefully as uh, someone married 10, 20, 30, 40 years, this is an amazing duty of privilege to enjoy your wife or husband in that sexually intimate way where the covenant is ratified, the marriage uh, vows are remembered through the joining of man and woman, the two becoming one flesh. God's covenant relationship with us, God's covenant relationship with us is him-focused, which brings out the best in us. Our marriage covenant relationship should be spousal-focused, which should bring out the best in him or her. And in turn, our spouse's focus should be on us, which brings out the best in us. Let's look back on Jack and Teresa's situation. It's really messy and complex, but if each one of them had fully rooted were fully rooted in their love and commitment and in duty to one another, they would not be in the spot they were in. Teresa, under the uh, under a fully mature covenant marriage principles, Teresa would feel supported. She would feel validated. She would feel loved. Jack would have his emotional and sexual tank full, and even if it was empty, he would be kept in check until it could be filled up again because of his love and sense of duty and commitment to his wife. When Jack felt that first tinge of attraction to Maria, he would say, how would, how would I want God to respond to me in my relationship? That's how I'm going to respond. I'm going to let how God relates to me inform how I relate to my wife and those who aren't my wife. So the, the action item here, the takeaway here, is for us to reflect on God's covenant love for us. Let's realize how God brings the best out in us. And let's apply that to our own marriages. Let's carry out our duty as husband and wife not only by the verbal vows, but by the symbolic oath in love and commitment and duty. And as Paul says, finally, be imitators of God, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ.